Welcome to GERT, conversations about architecture, entrepreneurship and life. We are proud to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, to recognise their ongoing connection to country, land and waters that were never ceded, and to pay our respect to Elders, past and present. Your hosts are Monique Woodward, Director of Wawawa Architecture, Mother to Cleo, Recording on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne, and Nick Brunson, Principal and Creative Director of Nick Brunson, Father to Bo and Minnie, who's in Perth recording on Wajuk Noongar Buja. Mon and Nick are celebrated industry thought leaders. Both have won the Australian Institute of Architects National Emerging Architect Prize and are Dulux Study Tour Prize winners. They bring candour and vulnerability to conversations about creativity and personal expansion. Please enjoy. Hey, hi, welcome to Gert. Uh, we're here today with Chris Bins uh, at Instagram on Instagram. Uh, that's, that's very clever. Um, hard to talk about Binzi uh, in a linear fashion, so I think we'll get into that into the interview. But the reason we've got on him here today and what we're so interested in talking to him about is he's someone who's kind of always managed to live outside the matrix um, and kind of create a life that doesn't really kind of conform to the way that you expect things to happen and um, but has lived it with a sort of sense of high personal agency and um, high ethics and morals too. His, his latest thing he's been doing is um, Make a Wave, which is uh, contributing to medical help across Indonesia, um, a surf challenge what every day as much as you can. Yeah, surfing every day in September. Yeah, which I think you would have done anyway. <laughs> um, but has also got background in uh, Editor, editor of Surfing Life Mag, uh, three years FIFO, uh, living up in Indo, um, working with refugees in Papua New Guinea, all sorts of interesting stuff that I'm really interested to get into. So let's just get straight to it. Um, welcome, Chris. G'day, Nico. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Thanks. <laughs> I was just thinking we've come a long, long way since we were first sitting in your yellow Kingswood back in the <laughs> university days to... Sitting, we've got this weird James Corden, Jerry Seinfeld vibe yeah, yeah, sitting well, in your Tesla recording because the acoustics are better than your co-working space around the corner. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get you to do some karaoke-ness. Kingswood, I actually drove across the place. So that's a good segue into Gert. That, uh, bought that in Melbourne, drove across the Nullarbor. Best time of my life, just, you know, mm-hmm. sitting in the middle of the desert singing all sorts of stuff top of my lungs with nobody around. It was just magic. Yeah, I think it's a West Australian rite of passage. I did it <clears> when I moved back from the East Coast with Dad. He flew to Sydney and yeah. I picked him up in Sydney and we, we did the drive together. And Awesome. It's so good. It's like, it, I don't know, we're already segueing, which is exactly what this podcast is about. But yeah, you're I was very really, cagey about letting me know what we were going to talk I know, about. because I don't want you to prepare for anything. Um, but, the yeah, the, I reckon it was just amazing, like, you travel across Australia and you drive like 40 hours and you get like a little flash of civilization at the start and then you're just in like farmland and then desert land and scarp and mesa and ocean. Then you get this flash of 45 minutes at the end. So it's like an hour and a half of like urbanization and then just what, 38 and a half hours of nothing. And you realize like how fragile and sort of small and thin the girtness of Australia is, yeah. which is kind of totally mind-blowing. It's... um. I've done a lot of lot of driving over the last couple of months. I've driven to Exmouth and back twice, which was six and a half thousand kilometres all up. So I could have driven to Brisbane and back. And uh, I'd love to know the stats of how much of Australia area-wise actually has phone coverage. Yep. Because per capita around the world, 
there couldn't be a country that has less phone coverage. <laughs> like, and you forget how used to having connectivity we are because all of a sudden every podcast you think you've downloaded, you get halfway through and then yeah. it cuts out and you're like, ah, oh, crap. And then you're just <laughs> left in the middle of the desert with your own deepest, darkest thoughts to contend with for a few hours until you end up in Carnarvon or somewhere and you get free bars once again. But you'd pay like, you know, $5,000 for a health retreat to do that, to not have connectivity. So, you know, isn't isn't that part of the benefit? Yeah. I will flag that we're, that I'm actually in Melbourne right now and can't drive more than like 10 kilometres. So just, just putting that out there. That's, yeah, yeah this is that. like salt right in the wound. Um, but, yeah, please continue about, you know, on your adventures. This, this, this seems to be a constant theme currently. Hopefully this, you know, as we keep going on, this will stop. Um, but, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I won't tell you this. Um, and so, Chris. Well. <laughs> I mean, but I, I guess it is, you know, around that meditative, um, you know, you kind of do get into a meditative zone when you're driving. I mean, I imagine it's sort of similar to when you're surfing though, right? I mean, I'm not a surfer, but I imagine that would be pretty peaceful. Yeah, surfing's um, about as good a therapy as you can get really. Um, you know, as soon as you – that first duck dive underwater, even if it's cold, it's brisk, it's refreshing, whatever, as soon as, as, soon as you pop up, you're – your clean sheet again. Um, so yeah, the challenge you mentioned, Nico, sir, um, for Surfaid, the Make Wave Challenge is yeah. You said I'd be surfing thirty days in September, regardless, which is so far from the truth. <laughs> um, but yeah, having to put that routine in place, and I'm lucky I've got a mate who lives right around the corner um, who's also dealing with breakup at the moment. So the two of us have just been getting up at six a.m. every day and getting to the beach, and you just have to do it because we've pledged and we committed to the cause yep and um definitely surfed a dozen days that i would never have looked at normally yeah but you know you come in a better person than you left every time and you know a large part of the surfing thing that's been made really apparent over the last couple of months is the community as well and just you know sitting out there having a having a chat with a mate is worth as much mentally as the physical side of you know catching 10 waves and paddling around the place for half an hour um, what's- so tell us about Make a, Make a Wave. Okay, so SurfAid is a charity um, that was set up oh, about 10 years ago by a Kiwi doctor by the name of Dr. Dave Jenkins. Um, so surfers in Indonesia are fortunate to visit remote, remote parts of the archipelago that no one would normally see unless they were a, a mad botanist or, hmm. you know, there's a few random places where backpackers turn up and whatnot, but generally you're on boats and you're in the middle of nowhere um, just chasing incredible waves. And Dr. Dave and a bunch of his mates realised that the where they were staying was riddled with malaria. And as medical professionals, they were like, well, malaria is pretty bloody simple to get rid of. So they came back a little while later with mosquito nets, tiger coils, a bit of educational material, and within a couple of years they'd managed to not eradicate malaria but they had massively reduced malaria on the whole across all of the regions that surfers visit and it was a you know a win-win for them because they'd get to go out and do these boat trips and they could combine some surfing with something a little bit more philanthropic um after they sorted out the malaria they were like what's next dysentery hygiene that sort of stuff um Dr. Dave's, Dave's mantra the whole time is it's a hand up, not a hand out. So instead of just giving money, it's educating people. Um, it, instead of digging a well, it's showing someone how to dig a well. 
you know, providing the infrastructure so that villages can go out and do all this sort of stuff. So 2015, I had finished up working at Surfing Life magazine. I was a freelance journalist living in Indonesia. Journalist is a very loose term. <laughs> I, I write about surfing. I wish I'd done journalism at university, but I didn't. Um, and I got sent off to Nias, which is an island far, far, far north west of Indonesia, um, up near Aceh, um, and has an incredible wave uh, in Lagundri Bay that was actually first made famous in the 90s in a Coca-Cola commercial. Uh, so it's been like one of the most iconic surf spots in Indonesia forever. But Nias is another island that's badly affected and that surf aid have done heaps of work with. So I went on this trip with a bunch of pro surfers. And we got fantastic waves, but the highlight was probably going out to the villages and seeing just firsthand the, the effects that surf aid could have on villages because they deliberately would take us to a couple of towns that had said no to help and you could see that there were hundreds of kids running around who looked malnourished and, you know, then you'd go to a town that or a village that had accepted help and there'd be a lot less kids but they'd be bigger and healthier and fitter and just the, it was chalk and cheese between the two places. Mm. So um, that was what first got my interest spiked in surf aid um, and I've been a pretty passionate advocate for it ever since. Uh, a couple of months ago, probably mid-June, I emailed Dr. Dave and the CEO of surf aid, who's a guy called Doug Lees, and just to, I just wanted to find out what the word on the ground was about Indonesia because as we all know at the moment with COVID, there's a whole lot of misinformation and rumour being spread about everything that goes both ways on the scale. Um, but these guys have offices throughout Sumba and Sumbawa and Roti and, and Nias, you name it. And um, they both wrote back straight away and said, mate, your timing's perfect. Indonesia's being flogged at the moment. And it's not just COVID. It, you know, they've got a terrible health system to start off with and now it's heavily compromised by this added extra burden. And the last people that anyone in Indonesia cares about is the people in the remote villages who mm. probably need more help than anyone. Um, and so these guys were about to kick off. They said, mate, we're about to kick off this September surfing thing, which actually the genesis of which started when I went to Nias with surf aid five, six years ago. Um, so the circle kind of completed and they were like, look, we're going to get surfers to get sponsored to surf every day in September. And I was living down south. I was like, I'm happily a social media slut. I was like, this is perfect. I, I can do that. No worries at all. Uh, I then ended up moving out to Perth to move in with my girlfriend on her request. And within two weeks of moving in with her, she broke up with me. Uh, so I shouldn't be laughing. That's, yeah, yeah well, we don't, <clears throat> don't need to go there. No. Um, I turned, deleted my Instagram and my Facebook for about a month and just got off socials and went for the drive that we spoke about um, and just surfed my brains out. And the thought of now living in Perth, which is one of the worst cities for surfing in Australia, and jumping on socials and telling the world about it was the last thing I could have ever imagined I'd want to do. Um and then one night I was sitting up in the in this little shearer's shack that I'd hired in a, at Warra Station in the middle of freaking nowhere up north and uh, I wrote what I thought was a draft on my Instagram and I was like, you know what, it's called a challenge for a reason, I'm going to do it. And uh, thought I'd saved it to my drafts 
and woke up in the morning, walked outside and my phone must have picked up one bar of connectivity from somewhere and all of a sudden it posted. And uh, I went and had a shower and about 20 minutes later I looked at my phone and it lit up and I'd committed to do this surfing challenge, so surfing every day in September. I actually started on the <laughs> 10 days before. Love it, love yeah, it. I actually started 10 days before September started. So today is actually my 30th day straight, um, but I will surf all the way through to the end of September. Um, and I was pretty honest on socials as to, you know, the fact that I'd been going through a rough time and this wasn't going to be easy, but it was a challenge and I wanted to get stuck into it. And um, today I just clicked over the $14,000 mark for personal fundraising, uh, which is <clears throat> probably twice the next person yeah congrats uh, congrats well, i mean to be honest it's i've got an amazing network and i think people have appreciated my honesty and openness well i was online. gonna say that's that's the reason i like i got in touch the first time apart from being mates but also that you know like that post you made was like so raw and honest and vulnerable but you know you've got this cause which is obviously great in its own right but when you pair that with like you know the emotional vulnerability of it then it kind of became something like more where it's like you know the human condition and the cause and the things aligning and it all kind of becoming more than, you know, yeah. one thing. And it, it's given me a, a distraction and a challenge and motivation to, you know, I think a lot of my mates were pretty worried that um, newly single me would go on a bender of biblical proportions for the next few months and instead oh. I've had had to get in the ocean every morning um, and so instead of, making a dick of myself. I've learned a lot more about myself in the last couple of months than I have in probably the last few years and I've lost a bit of weight and I'm feeling better about things. And, yeah, yeah. it's sort of um, – I know my mates are all pretty happy with me at the moment because they, they were on the – But I guess, I guess it's those, like, daily practices though, right? Yeah, yeah. And and even just, you know, it's forcing me to reach out to, to mates who I maybe I haven't seen for a while and say, I've got to go surfing. Do you want to join us? Yeah, and so I've caught up with dozens of mates that I normally wouldn't have. Um, and I remember the quote that like it said like discipline is freedom, and it's like the discipline or the daily practice, like you're talking about, Mon. It's like what well, if you know you're doing that, then your brain doesn't have to think about that, and your brain can then think about all the other things. Like you actually kind of like go, that's something I don't need to think about. Like that's taken care of. This morning I'm getting in the ocean, I'm going for a surf, or going to the gym, or I'm writing in a journal, or I'm doing a meditation or whatever it is, but that like then becomes the freedom to start thinking about all the other shit you need to worry about rather than being anxious about, oh, God, I, you know, I should go to the gym or I should go for a surf or I haven't been out yet or I haven't like yeah. created space to think about these things or blah, blah, blah. Um, I've got a question which is about, you know, like the kind of the tight, the, they're being tied, you know, you've, or you've always been quite strongly tied to quite social justice and social causes. Like, you know, you work with the Ruth Refugees in Papua New Guinea was um, really admirable. This make-away stuff that you just described was really, really interesting too. Um, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, like surfing to me is like, you know, I'm, I'm not a surfer so I don't get it, but, you know, like to, to find breaks, you having to go to these kind of weird places like far-flung through, you know, cities, towns, villages, shacks and kind of see like this breadth of the human condition and that like, just going to find the wave actually is like an education to oh, everything in its own right. Absolutely. And so I was like kind of wondering what comes first is like being a surfer, the thing that like 
then educates you about like what's going on in the world or are you someone who like needs to care about you know like environmental things to actually like kind of appreciate being a surfer and then like all those things come together yeah i think you can't really um generalize surfers at all um i'm not a fantastic surfer by any stretch but what I've got from it is an amazing community and network of friends. Mm. And I have surfed in every ocean. I've surfed everywhere from Iceland to Norway to Ireland to Indonesia to Morocco to yep. Sri Lanka to yep. Fiji, Tahiti, Hawaii, yep. New York, like you name it. And there's always... Well, you were, you were the head reporter for the World Surfing Tour for, what, like five years, right? No, no, no. So I... um. I worked. I worked for a magazine called Surfing Life for yep. seven years. The yep. last three and a half as the editor in chief, um, which was a monthly magazine. We had a circ of about thirty thousand. Apparently, the publisher would never tell us, so that's probably yep. bullshit. Um, and yeah, from there, I was doing a lot of commentary as well. Um, because I don't mind having a chat and it was pretty easy work. So when I quit and went out on my own, uh, I started getting gigs, commentating events. Um, I like to call them the events that no one watches. <laughs> yep. Um, so not really a world tour level, more of the qualifying series. So if, if someone does ever recognize me in the surf, I know that they're a hardcore surf nerd because I'm like, who else is up in the middle of the night watching yep. you know, a qualifying series event from Taiwan? <laughs> But yeah. there's there's people who do. I've got someone in my office who said like I'm going to be in late on Monday because I'm staying up to watch the yeah, yeah, yeah. The tour. Well, the, I mean the world title went down last week. Yeah, and, and there was a lot of us who who didn't sleep because it started yeah. in California at sort of midnight our time. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so commentary <laughs> would get me flown around the world, and then I would just always make sure I took off and, and spent every dollar on exploring whatever yeah. region we were in um, with whoever I was crossing paths with, you know. Yeah. So I've got great mates who surf in Canada and Ireland and you yeah. name it, you know. It's just this fantastic network um, and it's just, yeah, opened so many doors. Well, I was going to say, like, in terms of, like, parallels to business, like um – you know, there's the, what do I say, you know, fill the well before it gets dry, like, you know, and that your network is your net worth, like what you actually, who you know and how you know and the people you connect and those kind of relationships you build, other things are like, you know, give value to your life, like, you know, a life without friendship, without sort of camaraderie or without these kind of connections is, you know, like, what's the point? Yeah. And so, like, to actually kind of, while, you know, like, a lot of your contemporaries would have potentially, you know, like, gone to uni, got the degree, done the job and kind of like, you know, build it, built that way. You've kind of, as I said at the start, kind of lived a bit outside the matrix in terms of kind of creating your own path and your own way of getting through and doing things. And, you know, I'm kind of interested in reflections. It's not about saying one way is right or one way is wrong. Like, you know, it's all about personal preferences and what, you know, your drivers or your motivations are, like some people's security and safety and comfort and working, you know, kind of in sort of bigger machines or bigger causes, you know, is right. Some people like, you know, kind of living a bit more, not knife edge, but, by your own terms is what's right. So, you know, like on reflection, you know, of the way you've, you know, you've gone through things, like how have you know when you, how do you know when you've been on the right track and when you haven't been on the right track and like is it a gut feeling or does a moment happen or, you know? Um, you, well, I mean. Do you end up like accidentally firing yourself? Or something? <laughs> yeah. I, 
it's a really hard one because I just feel like I'm incredibly lucky all the time. But then, you know, there is the cliche about you make your own luck. Yeah. And from the start, I've just asked questions. Um, you know, you don't ask, you don't get. And that's pretty much been my mantra from the beginning. Um, I grew up reading Surfing Life magazine um, and wished that my careers advisor at uni had told me to go and study journalism because I always enjoyed English Lit, I always enjoyed reading and writing. Um, I didn't. I went and did science at uni, but while I was at uni, I was editing university newsletters, I was editing university newspapers, um, and probably finding my feet into a career through that more than in a laboratory. Yeah. Um, a new magazine called Stab, which I'm actually wearing the t-shirt yeah. right now, um, <clears throat> started right as I was kind of so straight out of uni. Dad was an engineer. He got me a job working FIFO um, before FIFO was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of 23, 24, making 150 grand a year. <laughs> uh, and But that would only be for six months. And then so that's what, 90 grand and then, you're getting taxed 47%, so you lose half of that. So that's like 45 grand, and then I just fuck off and buy a round-the-world plane ticket. Yeah. See you later. Uh, so it didn't last very long. Um, and I did two or three stints like that, and then this Stab magazine came out. And one night I just sent them an email and said, hey, I think your magazine's great. I'm bored with all the other ones. Um, do you want to give me a job? And they might have like my pluck or something because I wrote back and straight away and said, what's your number? And gave me a call and I said, who are you? What are you doing? I said, I'm um, 24-year-old drunk from Perth who works FIFO and likes to surf. And yep. I said, well, when? Done. Job. Well, they said, when, when are you going out to, to see next? And I said, I'll fly out tomorrow. Mm. Said, Why don't you write a thousand words about dudes who work on oil rigs? <laughs> okay, done. I wrote it and I was lucky that I was lucky again that there were all these really interesting cross section of surfers on board the barge that I was working on. So I had all these great tales of adventure and with dad being an engineer, I could fill in a bit of background about what's actually going on out there and yada, 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 sent it into them. They published it, paid me $300 and a penny drop almost instantly. Hang on a second. I can get paid to write. Yeah. This is amazing. Uh, and I was living the life at the time, um, had plenty of money, two weeks on, two weeks off, that kind of thing. And I started flying to Sydney uh, and basically did a, an internship just off my own bat. I was sleeping on one of the editor's couches and I'd go into Sydney for 10 days and hang out in the office and have a great time and get more and more stuff published, which is a bit of a thrill the first time you see your name in, 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 in ink on a page. And... Uh, then sure enough, the, the next five five swing wrapped up and I fucked off and got another round of world ticket and that, <laughs> that was the end of that. But while I was overseas, I saw a job advertised online at Surfing Life, which was a magazine that I'd grown up reading and uh, I emailed the guys at Stab and was like, hey, would you mind if I applied for this? Because they just started, they had no money. They were like, mate, we'd love to give you a job but we can barely afford to pay ourselves. Um, and I asked them about this job and they are like, go for it, you'll get it will be sorry to see you go. Uh, I think I emailed my application in from New York and then I flew to Europe, went backpacking for a few months and this is 
you know, emails for flying back and forward from Italy and France. And then when I was in France, I was like, well, how about you go and report on the Quicksilver Pro for us, which is the surfing event in France. So I went and I hung out and I knew Taj a little bit from yelling up. So I sort of had a bit of an in there to talk to a pro and, and you know, Quicksilver rolled out the red carpet and I wrote this contest report and that got published in Surfing Life. And I was in San Sebastian with our great mate Dave Mitchell uh, one morning I got an email at 10 a.m. saying, you've got the job. Um, when can you back, get back here? So we were on the tequilas in San Sebastian at 10 in the morning celebrating my first ever job at the ripe old age of 27. And uh, I flew home in the next couple of weeks and had two nights in Perth and then flew the Gold Coast and, and kicked off my career. And it just all sort of stemmed from this just knock-on effect of sending an email one night Um asking a question and so ever since then i've just oh i've been knocked back for that many bloody jobs but you know if you keep knocking you, you eventually do get accepted every now and then and um the opportunities just seem to keep coming and you know once you say yes to something another door will open and as soon as you say no those doors close so i've yeah. just sort of been playing yes man my whole life i mean yeah i love that so much because i feel like that's exactly um exactly true you know you look back after saying yes to a million things and then suddenly it's you know 10 years later or 15 years or 20 years later and then you've just got this um you know incredible trajectory that you could never have really imagined or foresaw but um it's actually just the result of saying yes to all of these different things I don't know I think that's there's a lot of magic in that yeah Uh, and you know it does Definitely takes a bit of courage to, to ask questions as well, um, you know, because you generally feel like someone's just going to say no, so you're kind of mm. wasting your time. So you have to sort of get over that and, and you have to not let a no knock your confidence as well. Yeah. Um, so but I think there's also something like it's, yeah, it's putting yourself in the path of opportunity or the path of said luck or good circumstance, which is just by taking shots. But then I reckon something happens at some point as well where you go from like saying yes to everything to then like learning to say no to everything. Oh, it's a fantastic day when you can find yeah, say no. Yeah, I know, but that's work. like when does that happen? How does that happen? How do you know that, you know, because like, it's a complete mind shift, you know, like where you're so everything that's got you to this point is about saying yes to everything. But then everything that's going to sustain you from this point is about saying no yeah. pretty much everything. And how do you know? Is it a day? Is it a year? Is it like 10 years where you kind of gradually phase the thing out? Or is it like kind of being certain about your path and where you're going and what you're doing that you kind of then are fully like kind of crystallized and so it's about doing less but doing better. We know at the start it's about sowing seeds everywhere and seeing what grows. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Absolutely. I mean <clears throat> I've I've guess I've been a freelancer since I quit at the magazine in twenty thirteen. And I've I've always found that two jobs is sweet. Once you've got three things on your plate at the same time, that's when you start to struggle. Yeah, I, I got to a stage a couple of years ago. I've always had a. I've been lucky. To, I've had a retainer with Red Bull for five or six years. Um, I don't think Red Bull's the coolest company in the world, but they're actually <laughs> based in Salzburg in Austria. Yeah, and I don't know the first thing about surfing, so I'm their surfing consultant, which is fantastic. Um, <laughs> but at one point, I was pushing back really hard because they wanted me to go to Tahiti and I just the thought of it was just too much. I've just been doing too much lately and I, I 
it's a pretty uh, dramatic day when you realize you're saying no to going to Tahiti <laughs> for Red Bull. For, for Red Bull, but you're yeah. like, okay, there's this. I'm doing a bit too much at the moment. But what so. was it? What was it that you'd overloaded, or you yeah. just like the thriller gone, been, and it was better to like step aside and create room for someone I, else? Yeah, or? no, no. I just been traveling all year, which I'm lucky. I'm the world champion plane sleeper. Yeah. So I think my record one year was something like 85 flights. Um, I do all my stats on how many hours each flight is and why is it like because you sit on a plane or you just, no, there's nothing you to do. I'm, I'm dig it out. It's in my phone. <laughs> you, you sit in a plane for 12 hours. It, it yeah. takes 30 seconds to type in yeah. Perth, Sydney, four hours. Yeah. Um, so if you can, I don't know, but it takes a sort of certain sort of person that actually wants to remember all that. But it's, is, is it like, you know, but when you're traveling that much, yeah. like I use Instagram as a diary as much yeah. as I do a tool to show off how delicious my dinner was. Yeah. Um, because I'll scroll back and be like, oh shit, I was in Portugal. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. That trip was great. Um, so let's see. 2019, I caught 75 flights that were 322 hours, 22 hours in total. Yeah. And then if you do the maths on 75 flights and you assume you've got an hour at an airport either end, that's another 150 hours. So we're up to about 450 hours, something like three weeks yeah. <clears throat> in airports. Yeah. But thankfully I slept for that entire three weeks because I get on a plane and I wake up 12 hours later and I, I'm like, I hope we're there. Like mm. I hope we haven't. Sometimes it's like, oh, we haven't taken off yet, but other times it's like, oh, we're already there. This is fantastic. Yeah, I reckon this is the, the next big conversation that comes after COVID is uh, travel, airports, and carbon footprint. Oh, like, you know, like what, you know, we're also kind of travel happy, but then like actually like sitting still for a while and kind of actually realise that all these things that you used to jump on planes for, oh, like that you probably don't need to anymore. 100%. Yeah. Uh, it's a massive re- re- reset and mm. I think the planet definitely needs it i want to circle back to the mindset of luck um and a lucky perspective because i guess um you know i feel like some people feel as though that they do have an inherently lucky um you know a a lucky life and then other people feel like they don't you know have um you know that that they'd never win something at some random like business card pull out at a at a function or something. Um, but I guess I just want to talk about, you know, that, um, that perception of luck and making your own luck and, um, whether you feel as though that that really has been a mindset of yours and whether that's grown over time or, um, and that, you know, has some of these kind of more vulnerable meditative, um, practices contributed to that. I guess they're the sort of things that I'm curious about and I'd, I'd like to get your perspective. Um, for our listeners who feel like maybe they aren't so lucky. Yeah, I, I think there's two side, two ways of looking at everything. Um, and, you know, a lot of that comes down to perspective. A couple of years ago, 2015 actually, um, I was in France. I'd spent six weeks in Europe. I'd driven all over France, Portugal, Spain, and, uh, it was mid-afternoon. I got in the car in the middle of the French countryside in Provence and the driveway that I pulled out of had a sort of a slip lane to the left and mid-afternoon, broad daylight, I 
drove onto the wrong side of the road and only made it about 400 metres, but we were in the French countryside with big hedges either side of the road, so you couldn't see around any corners. And at about 70 k's an hour, I came around a bend and had a head-on crash with someone in a car who was on the other side of or the same side of the road as me. But So I drove on the wrong side of the road. Um, thankfully, I was dead sober. There was no contributing factors apart from the fact that I was I just – for a split second, followed what I was used to, like a yield kind of lane, like we drive have here in Australia, onto the wrong side of the road. And I could very easily have killed the people in the other car. They were in a crappy old little Fiat. I was meant to have hired like a big four-wheel drive Jeep Wrangler thing and they didn't have one. So I was on the ground in like a little V-Dub Golf as well. I think if I'd been in a four-wheel drive, I probably would have killed them. Um, and in the end, despite the fact that neither of us hit the brakes, there were no skid marks. So we came around the corner and we were both doing at least 70 k's an hour. So that's getting your car, driving a wall at 140 k's an hour. I saw a flash of white light. Turns out it was the airbag. It wasn't God or anything like that. And there was an ambulance driving past freakishly at the time who (laughs) managed to pull one of them out of the car, the other one had to be cut out with the jaws of life um, and that family refused to talk to me but the police, once they breath tested me and they realised I was dead sober, they started saying, il a roule l'anglaise, so he drove English. Yeah. So it's a term that exists over there because idiot poms get in their car and go around a roundabout the wrong way and you know it leads to plenty of accidents but maybe none quite as dramatic as mine. But the family accepted it was an accident um, and I think they might have had a broken ankle and a broken leg between them. Um, but nothing really came of it apart from that, which you could say that's incredibly unlucky that I'd done something so dumb. But I also feel incredibly lucky that it wasn't a guy on a motorbike who I killed. Yeah. You know, or I wasn't in the bigger car that I was meant to have rented and then killed someone. Um, so dealt with that. That was on the Tuesday night. I ended up in Paris on the Thursday. I had a friend who was working on the boats in Marseille. He was actually the guy I was driving to meet when I had my accident. And he said, how are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm pretty rattled to be honest. And he said, what's your plan? I said, well, I'm in Paris for the weekend. He said, mate, I'm going to come to Paris. You need a friend. So he, he caught the train up to Paris uh, he messaged me, well, I messaged him because I looked at the gig guide and there was a big concert happening on the Friday night. I said, do you want to go to this? And he said, yep, absolutely, let's do it. So I started looking around for tickets and then he messaged me that afternoon and said, mate, I can't get out of work until 6. By the time I get there, it'll be 10. Let's let's not go to the gig. That gig turned out to be the Eagles death metal concert at the Bataclan and, again, that's just dumb luck. My mm. mate couldn't get on the early train and there were 88 people killed at that concert and they started at the back of the concert hall and I know given the week that I'd been in, we would have been at the bar at the back. There's no way we would have been up on the fence mm. moshing along the, those guys. So to have something like that happen in the space of four days, um, you can either take it as you're 
bloody lucky or are you bloody unlucky? And but that's the oh, isn't that that's like the kind of the key to everything, isn't it? It's like intention and framing, mm. like how you frame the circumstances of your life tells you how you're going to live like the next parts of your life. Because yeah. if you could, you could totally have taken that and gone, you know, gone into a depression. I'm a fucking idiot. I almost killed these people. I almost got killed two days later. But instead, you kind of like there, but for the grace of God, go I. And there, this is so for yeah. Yeah. So then this is this opportunity or this circumstance which well, frames, I, you know, the life I've been living and says that, you know, like that, I don't know, it's like when you're in the current, someone's looking after you or whatever that becomes. Well, I was meant to go to Morocco after that for a surf trip and all of my gut instinct was like, mate, just just go home. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> just reset. So I flew back to Indonesia and uh, my first day back on Indonesia, I got hit by a truck on my scooter. Yeah. And it was overtaking when it shouldn't have been. I had nowhere to go and it just clipped me and sent me flying into a rice paddy that was full of mud. And I was literally standing there. I had a helmet on. I was I looked like a swamp monster. I was covered in mud from head to toe and everyone stopped. People came and helped me get my bike out. People's jaws were on the ground and I was laughing. I was like, well, bad luck comes in threes. And I was sort of looking to the heavens going, is that it? Are we done? Yeah. And I turned around and I drove my scooter back to my house and I jumped in the swimming pool fully clothed, yeah. covered in mud and stripped off everything I had and I was naked in this pool in Indonesia going, right, we're done. This is the cleanse. <laughs> I hope the cleaner doesn't stick her head in now because I look like an absolute weirdo, but that's it. And, um, yeah, just running into friends after that, just you've become so grateful for everything and um you know it's it's so easy to get in your own head and, and feel like you're unlucky or that things aren't going your way but when you look at a bigger picture mate, the anyone, whole like anyone we know is <clears throat> a very very fortunate person. oh definitely and the whole you know everything happens for a reason it's like yes because you've got to like frame it as lessons for your own life that helps like inform your story and help you, you know, understand yourself and what you're doing and how you're going to kind of progress forward to the next stage and the next steps and phase. When you were speaking earlier around, um, you know, it being this perfect time for you to, for you to have gotten in contact with, um, you know, the magazine around, um, you know, Indonesia and COVID and the help that they were needing um, and having, you know, put out this extremely vulnerable post. I just kept thinking about the John Gollings post that he um, or the portrait that he took recently. He's a famous architectural photographer and he, um, you know, he posted this um, beautiful photo of him crying and it was for the Martin um, Cantor uh, Portrait Prize in Ballarat and for the photo Biennale and he was just mucking around with lenses and actually um, sort of in a way accidentally took a photo of himself sort of crying and he was talking about his father and it was this really beautiful um, explanation and outpouring of vulnerability and I guess um, it almost seems as though um, you can see on social media at the minute that there are these um, stories that people are allowing to filter, um, filter through into um, or, or penetrate their sort of seamless, um, I, you know, social media profiles. They're actually um, showing who they are and allowing people to um, to see into their soul or something. And so um, 
I mean, yeah, could you talk a bit more around around that? You're, you know, you said you were a social media slut before. Um, yeah, like how, how do you sort of reconcile those two things? Well, and, and what's the what's the feedback been? Because, you know, like I'm someone who's pretty prideful and like quite careful in curating like the image I put out into the world for I don't know what reasons are. And it's maybe it's work I need to do on myself to kind of get a bit more vulnerable in those ways. Um you know, it's always the fear of like how people are going to judge you or react to you or respond to you. Um, and before you answer, I just want to jump in as well because, Mon, you just remind me of I had this moment um, during the week where I had my daughters and um, Bo, my eldest, was kept asking about death and all these stories about like who's we're driving past cemeteries and who's died and why they're there and do we know anyone that's died and all this sort of stuff. So I took them to the cemetery and we just walked around and just like had a look at things and like, kids in a cemetery is like fucking hilarious so two, two things because they're, they're like running around like chasing magpies and like lying on tombstones having and, a great time having and going like who died there who died there who died there <laughs> and then people are looking at me because it's just me and my two girls and they're going oh that poor man <laughs> but then anyway then then we get home and they're asking um they're saying you know like so who in your family's died dad and i'm saying oh you know i'm lucky it's, it's really only my, only my grandparents and i started showing them pictures of my grandma and I'm showing my daughter a picture of my grandma and um, there was this one video where she's reading this poem and just like pressing the video and watching her like read this poem like I just immediately like was transported and just like started bawling in like just complete just a complete mess and Bo's sitting next to me and she looks at me first and she's kind of going like what's wrong with you mate like just and then she starts laughing at me and then she kind of like realizes that it's serious and she like comes up and like gives me this like huge beautiful hug and I'm like I, know, I first had this moment of being like that was just so nice that you know firstly that I was able to kind of be raw in that moment and actually do that and not kind of like because I've I never I've never seen any male figures in my life like cry and so like to kind of do like for me it felt like a gift that she gave me that I was able to like connect emotionally and give that to my daughters to see like men be vulnerable and cry. Um, and then for her to like see it and know it and acknowledge it and like kind of try and a four year old trying to like calm me down, I yeah. thought was like this. And that was like this lesson about vulnerability. Like you're scared of it because like the first moment is like, oh God, I'm about to cry in front of my daughter because of my grandmother. And then it's like, no, go with it. And that's like you in the one bar. It's like, you know, you wrote the draft. And the <laughs> one bar was like, go for it. Yeah. And then, you know, anyway, talk to us about what the, what that process has been like. Um, yeah, so I mean, social media for me, as I said, with Instagram, it's always been a diary. Um, but it also advertises that I will travel for work. Um, so if I'm commentating an event in the Philippines, then someone who's running an event in Fiji might go, oh, we can get that guy. Um, so I've always used it as a bit of a tool to try and trap work. Um, you know, the usual vanity of, look at me, yeah, I'm yeah. in the tropical, I'm in the <clears> tropics, <throat> hooray. Um, I'm drinking a cocktail at Waikiki. Um, <laughs> you know, I try to avoid that. I've always kind of written pretty lengthy captions because I enjoy the writing side of things as, yeah. as much as anything else. There's also law of diminishing returns. It's like there's only so many times you can see Binny, Binzy surfing away, hanging out with Kelly Slater or a <laughs> beer or whatever. It's like, you know, yeah, yeah, we know you like Binzy. <laughs> Yeah, don't get me started on Kelly Slater. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, I think I've, I've just, from the start, people have always appreciated my honesty about stuff. Um, 
working in a magazine, you get a photographer who has just shot some incredible surfing and they want to sell you a package of photos. And I will say, yes, we're interested or not this time, sorry. Whereas what I was finding was a lot of the other guys at magazines would just string people along, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, and in the end, Plenty of photographers have told me what they enjoyed about my editorship was I'd say no, you know, straight away yeah. and not drag them along. To the point where when I finally quit, I had a couple of mag- uh, photographers who worked with rival magazines call me up and go, mate, we never even worked with you, but we've just heard great things about you. And photographers, like us surf photographers are a weird bunch of units. Mm. And you seem to have everyone's respect. So it taught me, you know, pretty early about the value of just being honest with someone and telling them straight away what you think. So I've, I've tried to stick with that as much as possible through all of my life. Um, and then, yeah, this challenge, um, you know, I've run my life just fueled on confidence over talent. And, uh, and then- that's just called being a male, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> being a man. Yeah, I was about to say that. That's just a classic male. <laughs> yeah, well, the white white man born in you know Western the Western world. Yeah, confidence over talent. Um, but then to think that my life was as perfectly well placed as ever, um, you know, living in Perth with a girl I love. You know, my birthday I was at the pub with her and all my mates, and I finally felt like I was starting starting to settle because I've spent the last yeah, however long. This week is the first week in 18 years I think I'm paying rent in Perth, which is a pretty momentous occasion. Uh, and literally four or five days later just to have her roll over in bed one morning and say she can't do it anymore. My confidence that has been everything that's led me to lead the life that I did just evaporated. Mm. And... I struggled. I've got, you talk about crying. I spent a month driving around up north and I got home and my roommate was like, please tell me you'd stop crying. <laughs> it's, like, it's like I've never heard a, a, male, a grown male cry so much. And I was like, I thought I was in my room in private. <laughs> he was like, oh, mate, I can hear you. Bloody hell. Um, That's cute. And then it got to the point where it was like, you know what, fuck it, let's just embrace it. Yeah. Um and I think that's the reason I've had so much success with this fundraiser is that I've just been very, very honest about the fact that I'm struggling. Um, and I think, you know, we we read and see all these things on TV about how men need to be more open and and I've, the last two months I've probably had more half-hour conversations with mates all over the world than I have in the last five years put together. Yeah, people reach out. As soon as you let people know you're struggling, it's amazing now how many people reach out. And everyone's like, we've all been there, mate. Yeah. Like, And every single conversation you have, if you just take one tiny little tidbit of difference from each one, yeah. it all just helps build, you know, the rebuild process. So it's uh, it's been pretty cathartic. It's definitely – I've had a few people – People just be like, "Are you all right, dude?" Mm. And I'm like, "No, not really." <laughs> and that's fine, and, yeah. and that's yeah. fine. And yeah. then everyone goes, "Oh, okay, cool." Yeah. And it's there's, I think, again, maybe it's the 
fortunate position we're in is that we can get past the stigma, Hmm. um, you know, without just thinking we're all woke leftards or whatever. But, you know, it is fine to talk to your mates and have these conversations and stuff and it's, yeah, and, you know, maybe it's setting an example for someone else who might be struggling as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's an invitation to open a conversation, which is, you know, kind of quite rare. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the same in a way for um, a lot of the toxic positivity that's around early motherhood, you know, that um, whenever you have a baby, everyone's like, oh, you know, you've got to enjoy it. You've got to just love it, love every minute, and you must just be having the best time in your little bubble. And, um, you know, I know for me it was so extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I almost like literally died, almost bled out in childbirth. And then, you know, that you sort of expected, um, you know, there was this one moment where this random woman just came up to me and she's like, oh, you know, just enjoy it. And I just told her to fuck off <laughs> like because it just wasn't where I was um, in that moment. And, you know, having someone tell me to enjoy, um, enjoy something that was, you know, a pretty torturous experience for me. Um, yeah, it's, I think that, um, so now I just make a habit of, um, reaching out to, you know, friends, uh, who I, you know, love and respect and just sort of say, Hey, are you okay? Cause I totally get that. It's like a really horrific time. And I just want to validate that experience for you and just say that all feelings are normal. And yeah. And I, you know, I love, I love seeing there's nothing more beautiful than seeing a man cry actually. So I love that we've been, um, chatting about that today. <laughs> No, it's it's great. Um, I think it's probably it's a really nice Zen place to leave it. I think so. Thank you so much for coming and chatting to us. It's been really, really lovely. Yeah, no worries. That was fun. And that's a wrap. Please don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with somebody who needs to hear it. Wawawa have been called the Masters of Delight. To check out their colourful work, please visit wawawa.com.au and follow on Instagram at wawawaark. And Nick Brunson's responsive, inclusive and emotive projects can be seen at nickbrunson.com or on Instagram at the same name. Our intro and outro music is I'm Blessed from The Manifestation by Chris and Teeb. Until next time, Gert, signing off. Too blessed to be stressed. Put on, down to rest. Put your faith to the test.